The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's talk about the global energy space. I'm looking at WTI crude oil uh, a little bit higher today, about $69 a barrel. There's a lot going on there. Uh, we got some deals going on there. We got Netherlands closing a gas field. When Russia's at a war with Ukraine, I have no idea what's going on. Scott Levine does, and Fernando Valle, he also does. They both cover the energy space for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Fernando joins us uh, via Zoom, and Scott Levine is here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Scott, let's start with you here. We've got an M&A deal in the energy space, in the shale space. Talk to us about what's happening today. Yes, Paul. So, uh, basically, what we have is uh, Patterson UTI, which is the number two land driller in the U.S., buying uh, or merging with, depending on how you look at it, a, a company called Next Tier Oilfield Solutions, which is a top four player in pressure pumping. And, uh, you know, basically Patterson has been rumored to be uh, disinterested in fracking over the years and, 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 it, and will effectively be the number two player in both spaces and really the only major player in both fracking and pressure pumping. So this is probably the largest deal that we've seen since, uh, since 2020 and, uh, uh, you know, raises a lot of interesting qu uh, questions about uh, what we're looking at uh, in, in a potentially slowing shale market. Fernando, I want to bring you into this conversation. What's your take on oil demand growth moving forward? Well, I think there are two uh, paradigms. The short term where, you know, as Abigail was saying about interest rates and, and, and impacting demand that ultimately will translate into lower oil demand uh, because of lower consumption. Oil still used uh, in the majority of our transportation, especially for uh, industrials and for all of our retail. So. If that is uh, at a lower level because of higher interest rates globally, then oil demand should also falter. But then in the longer term, you know, we saw the EIA, uh, IEA, I should say, coming out with their uh, a prediction that peak oil demand is just within the decade. We were a little slower on that. We think there's still a lot of hurdles to clear before we can uh, start weaning off of oil. Uh, you know, as a reminder, 5 billion people in the emerging markets still consume a very small amount of still consume a very small amount of, of uh, energy and oil will be critical in improving their standard of living and continuing to grow. Hey Scott, when when we see an M&A deal of this size and this magnitude in the shale space, what does it tell you about kind of where we are in the cycle, where the next several years of the the shale business looks like because it's been such a growth area for uh, domestic U.S. energy. Yeah, no, I think it clearly suggests uh, <laughs> that uh, we're heading in the wrong direction here. Really, the uh, rig count has fallen close to 10% uh, this year. Uh, I think the, the messaging initially was that it was due uh, almost entirely to a pullback in natural gas drilling resulting from the, the collapse uh, Seventy-five percent collapse in uh, in Henry Hub prices. Uh, you know the messaging was that uh, we'd see a strength in the oil side, compensating for the weakness in the gas side. But we've yet to see that in the rig counts. Rig counts have gone down uh, by almost fifty uh, rigs in the last month or so. And so uh, the appeal here, you know, uh, more than anything else, seems to be the two hundred million in synergies that uh, that Patterson will uh, realize from this deal. And so while uh, $70 oil is not the worst thing in the world for the industry, uh, given some of the uh, broader macro concerns that are out there. Uh, this suggests to me that we're heading through a, a slow patch at a minimum and that, uh, you know, this is more of a defensive deal than an offensive one. 
Do you have a particular target, Scott, when it comes to if you're looking at U.S. crude prices versus Brent um, at year end versus what those could be at the end of 2024? Yeah, no, I think the expectation, you know, would be that we're we're about at and Fernando probably can elaborate on this a little bit more as well uh, on the oil side that maybe we're looking at stability, uh, maybe some slight improvement potentially. But I can definitely say that what we've seen so far this year in the U.S., has been weaker than we would have expected. And I think anybody would have expected. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would turn it over to Fernando, you know, to elaborate further on, on oil price specifically. Yeah, Fernando, what are your thoughts as far as the trajectory when you're looking at U.S. versus Brent? Yeah, we think, you know, you can't fight the Fed uh, right <laughs> now. And uh, we, 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 along with Mike McGlone, we've talked a lot about how we think it's lower at first because the demand side of the equation is going to be the most important. Uh, we think OPEC's cuts are, are lowering the supply of Brent. That's widened the differential between WTI and Brent. And, and then now we've had a small amount of acquisitions in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, boosting that uh, WTI demand a little bit. So that's widened that gap. And we think we could go above $5 a barrel, maybe five fifty, dollars uh, in the, def- the, the discount between WTI and Brent uh, for the remainder of the year. Hey, hey, Fernando, I see in the news here that, that our good friends in Holland are closing Europe's biggest gas field. What's going on there? Don't they know there's a war in Ukraine and gas is short? I mean, what's going on there? They do. It's long been planning a plan to close the Groningen field, as you said, Europe's largest field, uh, because of earth tremors in, in the Netherlands. Um, oh. They actually <laughs> were supposed to close last year, and they've extended it because of the war. But now with the inventories refilled, uh, they feel more comfortable closing that um, closing that field. Uh, you know, it's probably not the greatest decision from an energy security standpoint. Um, perhaps a little bit of security again, be, false sense of security because we had such a mild winter this past year, um, and, and and it definitely makes Europe lean more on U.S. LNG uh, imports. Hey Scott, just real quick, thirty seconds. Are we going to see more? M&A activity in kind of the, your space, the energy space? Yeah, no, for services, I think we may see some more activity, particularly in the U.S. Uh, all, you know, this is, again, the first services deal that we've seen in uh, in recent memory of a public-to-public, uh, as opposed to the EMP space where there's been a ton of deal-making. So particularly if the outlook continues to deteriorate and rig and frack counts move lower, I think you could look for an increase in, uh, in M&A activity from here. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Love getting that uh, roundtable on global energy. We've got some M&A going on there in the services side in the U.S., uh, and we've, of course, got the global uh, supply and demand for energy. Scott Levine and Fernando Valle, both senior analysts uh, covering the energy space for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us here, so we appreciate getting their thoughts. The countdown has begun. This May, a 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and Premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jess Met and Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. I want to get right to our next guest, Eric Lynch. He's a managing director, part of the investment committee at Sharf Investments. They're based out there uh, in the West Coast in, in the Bay Area. Uh, Eric joins us though, live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, 24 hours, we've had a lot of eco data, a lot of uh, central banks, the Federal Reserve yesterday, the ECB today. They're both talking tough here. How do you guys at Sharf Investments put it all together and think about what you want to do for your clients? Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks for uh, having me, Paul. Um, You know, I think this is a great reminder that as investors, it's important to remember to follow the signal, not the noise. And signal is earnings, right? We're already in a a three-quarter kind of uh, tracking earnings recession. Um, And so even if the Fed is going to go higher for longer interest rates and I think Fed made it quite. I think the Fed made it quite clear yesterday mm-hmm. yep. that they will slow things down. So we think earnings are going to be restricted going forward. So 
you know, I think it's time for an earnings playbook, if you will. So I'm glad you brought that up because especially if you looked at the S&P 500 last year, excluding earnings uh, or the energy sector in particular, when you were looking at that, the earnings recession actually began in the second quarter of last year. So you kind of have the flip side of that where energy is sort of masking some of the brighter times that other industries are seeing there. So even when you're looking at that, there's an expectation when you're excluding energy that we're going to see double digit growth again for those um, other sectors, where are you in particular when it comes to some of these sectors looking that sees more bright spots? Yeah, no, good question. I, th I think there's three ways to kind of play this. Uh, one is to play this transition of, cons of, of spending consumption from goods to services, right? I think it's really interesting that investors are still a little slow to the draw on this. Last month, Flash PMI came out for services and manufacturing, and you know, services blew it away manufacturing uh, was in a contraction. So as a leading indicator, we're seeing that also uh, on the ground level, right? With travel companies blowing away earnings, and then meanwhile, Home Depot, Target, goods companies reducing guidance. So this kind of revenge travel, revenge servicing, elective surgeries, you saw the medical loss ratios increasing for the insurance underwriters yesterday because the older folks are having revenge surgeries. And so mm -hmm. that's a way to get some earnings growth um, for, for, for sure. Another way is I think just stick to defensive companies with low GDP correlation. The average lag between a recession and when the Fed pauses since 1989, four interest rate cycles, has been one year. And so we think it's a little premature to bake in forecasts for a big earnings ramp going forward. And so I think it's still time to be kind of defensive. Interesting, because then your recession take would be you're expecting one to happen later this year? It's hard to say. Year? I think it's a fool's errand to time it, as we've all been reminded this year, right? Um, as we've been constantly looking around the corner for this recession to occur. But where would it be driven by? Is it, I mean, I would think it'd have to be consumer spending, but we're not necessarily seeing that happen yet. Even retail sales this morning came in stronger than expected. Yeah, no, they were very strong. And I so I, that's definitely the bull case. Uh, I think the bear case would be, you know, I think the operative words in Powell's presser yesterday were, people are suffering, right? And I think we need to remind ourselves that only, I think the top 10% of wealth in this country owns 80% of stocks. And so if you look at the, the Fed's mandates, clearly full employment or inflation, we're fully employed. So I, th I think Powell made it clear that price inflation, they're gonna squash it. And historically, to answer your question, the only way to do that is to increase you know, unemployment slow things down, which obviously creates a slowdown in consumption. So historically, yeah, employment is what precipitates a recession. Um, and really the last general standing are in fact GDP growth and employment. All right, so in terms of a recession or earnings playbook here, earnings recession playbook, I kind of feel like there still may be some earnings risk left in this market. We still got the S&P 500 earnings uh, are 220 bucks roughly for this year. Some people are saying that could be 200, maybe even below that. So right. uh, how do you guys think about earnings, recession, and kind of how that influences kind of what stocks you look at? Yeah, I, I think we still think there's risk to the downside to that 225 number, as you mentioned. Um, you know, the, the issue there is that baked into that consensus is 9% year-over-year growth for Q4. It just seems a little unrealistic. Uh, it's possible, for sure, to your point. Things are hanging in there consumption-wise. The, the today's consumer spending numbers were, retail sales numbers were interesting. Um, but nevertheless, you know, we're a little worried about the impact, the lagged effect of the monetary tightening. The, uh, the, the credit tightening specifically is probably going to, in our opinion, start slowing things down further as the year progresses. The other thing that I don't think is giving enough play uh, in investor kind of discussions is that the net profit margins of the S&P 500 are still at all-time highs. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a structural increase the last 20 years. It's been accounted, it's accounted for over half of annual EPS growth. And so if you look at that, it was low financial expenses, a global arbitrage of labor and supply chains, low transportation. All those tailwinds are now headwinds. And then you had companies passing on price during the pandemic. So we topped out at 13% on net profit margins during the pandemic. They're down to 11. Baked in that consensus number for next year is 12%, which would still be 20% higher than the level they were before the pandemic. So I think even independent of the economy, 
what you're seeing in, on, a, on a micro level with companies' guidance is they keep referring to margins, margins being kind of constricted going forward. So I think that's the real issue. As far as, what it, especially when it comes to margins, Gina Martin-Adams at Bloomberg Intelligence was saying some of the pain may have already been passed and potentially troughing in that first quarter. Moving forward, I mean, what are you seeing and what are you hearing from your clients on that end? Yeah, I mean, and just anecdotally, uh, as investment managers managing a portfolio, we're still seeing margin kind of compression or discussions uh, with our companies that are reporting on Q1. And none of them are really saying, hey, yeah, it looks better Q2, Q3. Even wages, you know, if you look at labor as a percentage of GDP, um, it really troughed a couple years ago uh, in terms of a 50-year low. And it's still a point or two percentage points lower than average. And so you see that with the bargaining power of, of employees with low un unemployment. So I think, I think this wage pressure is still there. And I think, therefore, that's, what, 60% or something of operating expenses. So I, I don't think we're done. All right, Eric, great stuff. Appreciate you stopping by. Eric Lynch, he's a managing director uh, on the investment committee of Sharf, Sharf Investments based in Los Gatos, California, also the home of Netflix, a uh, little stock out there. <laughs> uh, so neighbors there out in Los Gatos and kind of in the Bay Area, very, very cool area out there. Appreciate it. Looking at the markets right here, uh, S&P 500 up a half of 1%. Uh, the NASDAQ, I'm sorry, the NASDAQ is up about a half of 1%. Uh, as well. S&P 500 um, on track for six consecutive days of gains. It beats longest streak since November 2021. And, it, and it's broadening out a little bit too. It is. is. What some of the, uh, the market folks are telling us, which is good news. It's not just Apple and Amazon right. pushing this higher. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Just met Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. I want to get right to our next guest, Eric Lynch. He's a managing director, part of the investment committee at Sharf Investments. They're based out there uh, in the West Coast in, in the Bay Area. Uh, Eric joins us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Eric, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, 24 hours, we've had a lot of eco data, a lot of uh, central banks, the Federal Reserve yesterday, the ECB today, they're both talking tough here. How do you guys at Sharf Investments put it all together and think about what you want to do for your clients? Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks for uh, having me, Paul. Um, you know, I think this is a great reminder that as investors, it's important to remember to follow the signal, not the noise. And signal is earnings, right? We're already in a, a three-quarter kind of uh, tracking earnings recession. Um, and so even if the Fed is going to go higher for longer interest rates, and I think Fed made it quite, I think the Fed made it quite clear yesterday mm -hmm. yep. that they will slow things down. So we think earnings are going to be restricted going forward. So, you know, I think it's time for an earnings playbook, if you will. So I'm glad you brought that up because especially if you looked at the S&P 500 last year, excluding earnings uh, or the energy sector in particular, when you were looking at that, the earnings recession actually began in the second quarter of last year. So you kind of have the flip side of that where energy is sort of masking some of the brighter times that other industries are seeing there. So even when you're looking at that, there's an expectation when you're excluding energy that we're going to see double digit growth again for those um, other sectors. Where are you in particular when it comes to some of these sectors looking that sees more bright spots? Yeah, no, good question. I, th I think there's three ways to kind of play this. Uh, one is to play this transition of, cons of, of spending consumption from goods to services, right? I think it's really interesting that investors are still a little slow to the draw on this. Last month, Flash PMI came out for services and manufacturing, and you know, services blew it away. Manufacturing uh, was in a contraction. So as a leading indicator, we're seeing that also uh, on the ground level, right, with travel companies blowing away earnings, and then meanwhile, Home Depot, Target, goods companies reducing guidance. So this kind of revenge travel, revenge servicing, elective surgeries, you saw the uh, medical loss ratios increasing for the insurance underwriters yesterday because the older folks are having revenge surgeries. And so mm -hmm. that's a way to get some earnings growth um, for, for, for sure. Another way is I think just stick to defensive companies with low GDP correlation. The average lag between a recession and when the Fed pauses since 1989, four interest rate cycles, has been one year. 
And so we think it's a little premature to bake in forecasts for a big earnings ramp going forward. And so I think it's still time to be kind of defensive. Interesting, because then your recession take would be you're expecting one to happen later this year? It's hard to say. Year? I think it's a full errand to time it, as we've all been reminded this year, right? Um, as we've been constantly looking around the corner for this recession to occur. But where would it be driven by? I mean, I would think it'd have to be consumer spending, but we're not necessarily seeing that happen yet. Even retail sales this morning came in stronger than expected. Yeah, no, they were very strong. And I so I, that's definitely the bull case. Uh, I think the bear case would be, you know, I think the operative words in Powell's presser yesterday were, people are suffering, right? And I think we need to remind ourselves that only, I think the top 10% of wealth in this country owns 80% of stocks. And so if you look at the, the Fed's mandates, clearly full employment or inflation, we're fully employed. So I, th I think Powell made it clear that price inflation, they're gonna squash it. And historically, to answer your question, the only way to do that is to increase you know, unemployment slow things down, which obviously creates a slowdown in consumption. So historically, yeah, employment is what precipitates a recession. Um, and really the last general standing are in fact GDP growth and employment. All right, so in terms of a recession or earnings playbook here, earnings recession playbook, I kind of feel like there still may be some earnings risk left in this market. We still got the S&P 500 earnings uh, are 220 bucks roughly for this year. Some people are saying it could be 200, maybe even below that. So right. uh, how do you guys think about earnings, recession, and kind of how that influences kind of what stocks you look at? Yeah, I, I think we still think there's risk to the downside to that 225 number, as you mentioned. Um, you know, the, the issue there is that baked into that consensus is 9% year-over-year growth for Q4. It just seems a little unrealistic. Uh, it's possible, for sure, to your point. Things are hanging in there consumption-wise. The, the today's consumer spending numbers were, retail sales numbers were interesting. Um, but nevertheless, you know, we're a little worried about the impact, the lagged effect of the monetary tightening. The, uh, the, the credit tightening specifically is probably going to, in our opinion, start slowing things down further as the year progresses. The other thing that I don't think is giving enough play uh, in investor kind of discussions is that the net profit margins of the S&P 500 are still at all-time highs. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a structural increase the last 20 years. It's been accounted, it's accounted for over half of annual EPS growth. And so if you look at that, it was low financial expenses, a global arbitrage of labor and supply chains, low transportation. All those tailwinds are now headwinds. And then you had companies passing on price during the pandemic. So we topped out at 13% on net profit margins during the pandemic. They're down to 11. Baked in that consensus number for next year is 12%, which would still be 20% higher than the level they were before the pandemic. So I think even independent of the economy, what you're seeing in, on, a, on a micro level with companies' guidance is they keep referring to margins, margins being kind of constricted going forward. So I think that's the real issue. As far as, what it, especially when it comes to margins, Gina Martin-Adams at Bloomberg Intelligence was saying some of the pain may have already been passed and potentially troughing in that first quarter. Moving forward, I mean, what are you seeing and what are you hearing from your clients on that end? Yeah, I mean, and just anecdotally, uh, as investment managers managing a portfolio, we're still seeing margin kind of compression or discussions uh, with our companies that are reporting on Q1. And none of them are really saying, hey, yeah, it looks better Q2, Q3, even wages. You know, if you look at labor as a percentage of GDP, um, it really troughed a couple years ago uh, in terms of a 50-year low. And it's still a point or two percentage points lower than average. And so you see that with the bargaining power of, of employees with low un unemployment. So I think, I think this wage pressure is still there. And I think, therefore, that's, what, 60% or something of operating expenses. So I, I don't think we're done. All right, Eric, great stuff. Appreciate you stopping by. Eric Lynch, he's a managing director uh, on the investment committee of Sharf, Sharf Investments based in Los Gatos, California, also the home of Netflix, a uh, little stock out there. Uh, <laughs> so neighbors there out in Los Gatos and 
kind of in the Bay Area, very, very cool area out there. Appreciate it. Looking at the markets right here, uh, S&P 500 up a half of 1%. Uh, the NASDAQ, I'm sorry, the NASDAQ is up about a half of 1%. Uh, as well. S&P um, 500 on track for six consecutive days of gains. It beats longest streak since November 2021. And, it, and it's broadening out a little bit too. It is. is. What some of the, uh, the market folks are telling us, which is good news. It's not just Apple and Amazon right. pushing this higher. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get back to kind of what's been the story for markets really over the last 24, uh, 36 Central hours. bank decisions. <laughs> exactly. They're going to keep coming. And then you mentioned we have the Bank, bank of Japan, Japan overnight. Overnight. Tonight, yeah. Okay, so we'll keep an eye on that. But we so have, of course, we Fed, had the yep. PBOC, ECB. ECB. Lots of uh, initials out there, but we know what they all mean. And so does our next guest, Dr. Vanya Stavrakeva. She is a professor of economics uh, at the London Business School. Um, professor, thanks so much for joining us here. I mean, again, let, can you put into context for us kind of how you frame out what we've heard from the U.S. Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank over the last 24 hours? How does that impact your view? So thank you so much uh, for having me. It's always a pleasure to participate. So I think uh, what might happen in the future is we might see an interesting divergence potentially between the U.S. and Europe. So we often tend to see the U.S. being the leader in terms of like the beginning of the hiking cycle. They, they are the, were the first to move followed by Bank of England and ECB. Um, now, usually you might expect that the U.S. is going to be the leader in terms of when they're going to stop hiking. So the Fed, of course, um, decided to pause for um, uh, essentially uh, one round. And then there's quite a lot of speculation that this is a bit unusual because there were positive surprises regarding real GDP growth and other variables. So no one expected them to pause, given that actually um, the data on economic performance was better than expected. My opinion is that actually what might be happening is we are seeing potentially the beginning of the Fed preparing us for a higher inflation target. So that is not something that I hear discussed a lot, but all central banks are acknowledging that it's going to take at least two years to go back to the inflation target. I don't believe that necessarily they would actually want to go back to 2%. I think the Fed might be preparing markets to probably a higher inflation target. Now, it will be interesting because ECB, if ECB decides to change the inflation target, it will be significantly harder given the history of ECB. Germany, we all know that Germany hates inflation. So um, we might see interesting divergence in uh, policymaking, which is quite unusual these days across the large central banks. Uh, and I, I think that's something that one should keep an eye on. Is the divergent also because of the way that our economy is structured quite differently when you think of it more services driven than, say, how economies in Europe are? Also, the majority of the economies in Europe are also service driven um, as well. Now, what's different, of course, is that uh, with ECB, we have many different business cycles. So what we're seeing is that inflation, for example, is falling faster in some parts of Europe where the labor markets are essentially less tight. So Germany, the core CPI inflation is still higher than many Southern European economies. Now, what was interesting is that, you know, during the zero lower bound period, uh, effectively, some people blamed ECB that they're putting too high of a weight on the German economy relative to the rest of the Eurozone. The same might be happening now. So essentially, it might be the case that Southern Europe and other parts of uh, the Eurozone now don't necessarily need as much tightening, but we might see that ECB prioritizes Germany more, not just because of the size of the country. Um, so I think it will be interesting to see to what extent ECB is going to continue with its stance on, we're really tough on inflation, we have to go back down to 2%, or they may come, might become a little bit more lenient and consider high inflation target as well. And, and Professor, to the extent that the Fed does, you know, maybe lift their inflation target going forward, that would be a big change for them. Is that a, would that be a it credibility will. issue for them? It will, but to be honest, they haven't delivered the target in a very long time, right? So here the trade-off is, we keep promising something that we haven't delivered for, for many years. So even during the zero lower bound, inflation was below the target. Yep. That's why they, mo they moved towards average inflation targeting. Um, I think there, I mean, we know that there are a lot of theoretical reasons why high inflation target is beneficial. So, for example, we knew that during the zero lower bound, um, a lot of economists, uh, including Olivier Blanchard, who was the chief economist of the IMF, um, kind of uh, essentially was pushing towards inflation target of 4%. The reason why that's the case is because if you're stuck at the zero lower bound, this is going to give you real rates of minus 4%, right? 
So it could really help stimulate growth. So there are many benefits to high inflation target. And I think actually if there is a time to change the inflation target, it might be better than pretending that we're going down to 2% mm -hmm. and being above 2% for two or three years. Uh, I think it's more dangerous in terms of what we're seeing. We're already worried about wage inflation um, expectations getting unanchored. Actually, the UK is the worst in terms of wage inflation expectations. So as you saw, the private sector um, uh, wage inflation was particularly high uh, in the UK. So I feel markets are starting not to believe the story that we're going back to 2%. So I believe that actually it might be a good time to adjust the target to something more reasonable. What do you think would be more reasonable? So 4%, between 3 and 3%, I think probably is more realistic. And, they wouldn't and, go and back that's to for the, the U.S. Federal Reserve? So yes, so for the U.S., but technically the U.K. has a bigger problem, right? So in, in terms of the data, the U.K. is the worst and the furthest away from the target. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised that the UK is going to um, also potentially entertain the idea of higher inflation mm. targets. But they, they're going to wait for the US. I don't believe that any country is going to even entertain the idea of raising the inflation target unless the US does it. So, Professor, we've spoken to some European and UK fund managers and strategists this morning about the ECB's action. And a lot of folks are just kind of exacerbated, exacerbated with the ECB and to the extent that they feel like the ECB is pushing the Eurozone into a recession or a deeper recession or a more prolonged recession. How do you view that risk? So the problem again is coming from the heterogeneity across countries and what we mentioned that Germany received a higher weight. Germany, so the history of ECB is effectively, it stands on the shoulders of the Deutsche Bundesbank that is known to be very tough on inflation, which is coming from the world wars in, in, in Germany where they had, when they had hyperinflation. So um, there are political economy reasons why it would be hard for ECB not to be tough on inflation, and Germany receives a very high weight here, and core CPI inflation is high for Germany. Um, well, 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 of course, you're correct that if you take the overall performance numbers of the Eurozone, um, that might appear that um, the economy doesn't need as much tightening, but here we're seeing political economy issues also at play, I feel. When it comes to some of these southern... European countries that are highly indebted, which ones in particular stand out to you as far as having a tough time moving forward when it comes to that economic growth? I think the usual culprit right now um, is Italy again, primarily for sovereign debt sustainability. We're in a very uncomfortable situation where ECB is still purchasing Italian debt while selling German debt, right? Doing quantitative tightening with respect to the German sovereign debt, but quantitative easing with respect to the Italian debt. I feel that it's a very uncomfortable situation. The sovereign debt sustainability issue is not resolved with respect to Italy. And I feel this is still an elephant in the room uh, with respect to the Eurozone that there has to be a solution for because we can't have ECB be the marginal holder of Italian government debt. And their debt is still with 150% um, of debt to GDP. So the number is very large. And I think ECB is still struggling with that. And I, I don't believe they have found a proper solution for it. Professor, back here in the U.S., are you of the opinion that this Federal Reserve will raise yeah. interest rates and if so, this year, and if so, by maybe how many times and what degree? So I, I think they paused in order also to see what is going to happen to credit contraction. So we saw that the banking sector lost about one trillion of deposits, um, and in total, there's about 17 trillion in the whole banking industry. So given that these are primarily regional um, small banks that lend a lot to small and medium enterprises, they want to see what the impact on employment will be. So small and medium enterprises are the main employer effectively in the US. So to the extent that there might be um, a credit contraction in terms of small and medium enterprises, they want to see how it's going to uh, play out um, at this point. Now, again, looking at the numbers, they technically shouldn't have paused if it truly they were data driven, right? So they discussed that they're data driven um, so the action was a bit surprising to me, to be honest, the only way I can explain it um, is that they might be tinkering with the idea of moving the inflation target and just admitting that they, they will not be easily be able to go down to 2% or come up with a regime that is much more flexible rather right. than just a well-defined target. All right, now, doctor, thank you very much for uh, giving us some of your time. We really appreciate it. Dr. Vanya Stavrakeva. Professor of Economics at the London Business School uh, joining us. Uh, we really appreciate getting some of her time talking about kind of the action we've seen uh, over the last uh, 24 hours with first the Federal Reserve and now the ECB today.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk retail sales. We had some retail sales uh, reported today. You know, they were less than the prior month, but a little bit better than... The market was still, looking still for still a strong consumer. I think so. I mean, it, it still seems pretty solid out there. But let's. Our next guest is a real uh, expert on this. Marie Driscoll, luxury retail analyst at CoreSight Research. Marie, what's your takeaway from the retail sales data we got today, and then maybe extrapolate that out there to what, what you're hearing and seeing from some of the other retailers? Sure, sure. Um, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, the numbers were 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 great. Really, they came in line with the expectations. So, the consumer is feeling constrained. We really didn't see any surprise. Clothing was flat, or you know, off two off two twenty basis points versus um, a year ago. Department stores pulled down general merchandise. General merchandise stores grew up two percent. The real winner this. Um, this month and really year to date has been health and beauty that showed a solid 7.8 percent gain year over year um and this just goes to really um there there's the lipstick effect if you want to look at look at it that <laughs> as way. an economic indicator <laughs> that's right i love that one um, um, so, but beauty is self-care. It's an accessible luxury. It changes how we feel, and it has great utility. You use it daily. Should so, we think of that as a staple instead of a discretionary? <laughs> I, well, you know, I think that the way we define discretionary and staple is a lot in the eyes of the user. Right. Um, when I look at teen retailers, it's like you and I might say this is discretionary. For them, it's an absolute must-have. There's just no discretion about it. Um, so it really depends on whose money it is. Right. You know, but, you, you know, beauty shares a lot of the same qualities as luxury, except it's at a much lower price point. So beauty did really well. Um, you know, clothing, when you look at what people are spending on, they're, they're really reducing on clothing. Um, furniture down dramatically at 6.4% year over year, and electronics, no surprise, down 5%. Consumers had really spent on those um, items during the pandemic and are looking to do, are really looking to be more social and out there. Um, food and services, which are included in this um, retail sales report, were up the, mo the, the strongest year over year at 8%. A lot of that's inflation, but people continued, people want experiences, want to be out, want to be social, they're spending there. Um, Another call out worth mention, like general merchandise stores up 2% year over year. We think it was, you know, really stronger than that at, at companies like Walmart, which are benefiting from all the essentials that they sell, the food that they sell, along with selected merchandise. The fact that more people are coming into their stores than, than pre-COVID because they captured more mind share during COVID, frankly. Can they hold on to that higher income customer um, in a post COVID world? And I think that they're doing their best to try and do that. It's interesting. I was speaking with a portfolio manager recently who was talking about how stocks like Estee Lauder, he wasn't going to get rid of because he felt like they were recession proof. <laughs> yeah. He knew his daughters, his wife were still going to buy those products. I wanted to pick your brain about the latest retail earnings season, especially since we just got this retail sales data. I mean, we had companies like mm -hmm. Macy's that cut their outlook just because of what they were seeing with the demand trends. But then you look at Lululemon, which is very niche right. athleisure and a bit expensive if you are thinking about some of their <laughs> right. products and, and they still had an opposite kind of take and we're seeing consumers go in. So what exactly does that tell us about the economy right now? So Lululemon is a retailer, but it's a brand and it's a lifestyle. Right. 
And and it's the kind of like in the last um, 20 years, it has become increasingly okay to wear yoga pants and the comfortable pants that they <laughs> they make with for the men pandemic all, all day long, right? And 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 we're wearing them from the work the workout routine to the coffee in the afternoon to maybe you put on a nice top and to the theater at night. So uh, like Lululemon has become a backbone of many people's closets. And frankly, it's not just an American brand. It's a global brand. There's incredible pent up demand in China for Lululemon. So there's legs for that company. Um, but, but again, it's partly lifestyle. And Macy's is very much, um, you know, it's the middle of the mall, um, the middle, it, it's a mass, it's not mass market, it's a department store, but but it's for middle America, um, where there where there is constraint, Lululemon might be that a little bit of a higher income consumer. Um, frankly, though, across the board, everybody is, you know, from the data we're seeing, people are impacted by inflation, and they're being choiceful as they make their spending choice, as they make their purchase choices. Hey, Marie, can you talk to us about kind of just the state of luxury right now? I'm just guessing that the inflation that we're all feeling out there, it's probably not impacting our good friends up at the luxury level. What, what, what are you seeing and hearing from those companies? You know, it's mixed. Um, some luxury companies cannot meet their demand, um, and that would be an Hermes and a, an, a Louis Vuitton, but many other brands are struggling with this. Um, the American consumer who was shopping for luxury during COVID um, attracted new consumers, younger consumers. People, luxury provides an experience. And when there were no experiences to be had, many people bought a handbag to feel better, an, an Hermes um, cuff. Um, and you got new people into luxury brands and they're feeling a pinch this year with inflation. Um, you'd like to think that luxury is sticky and people will continue to want it. I don't think that um, you're going to see the, the kind of growth that we experienced in 21 and 22 domestically. And you are seeing as people return to travel, luxury spending will um, will diversify. Um, Americans spent a lot on luxury in Europe last summer because they were able to travel again and the strength of the dollar. So um, luxury continues to better benefit from the 1%, the top 10% across the board, except for that top 1%. People are impacted by inflation. It's changing their luxury spend. Some brands are not impacted at all, but right. in the aggregate, luxury is impacted. All right, Marie, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting uh, the lay of the retail land uh, with you. You've got great experience uh, in the space and great insights. Marie Driscoll, she's a luxury retail analyst at Coresight's uh, Research, and she's been doing that for a long time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Well, how about this for our good friends up in Connecticut? Connecticut just agreed to a budget signing the largest marginal uh, tax cut rate in Connecticut history and the first tax cut for Connecticut in three decades. I'm sure my buddies up there are happy about that. Let's get the latest on all things the state of the state in Connecticut with Ned Lamont. He's the governor of the state of Connecticut. Governor, thanks so much for joining us. Talk to us about this budget and kind of the, the tax cuts you're getting across in Connecticut. Yeah, good afternoon, Paul. Um, look, I come out of the business world. People like a little bit of certainty. They don't want to know where your state's going to be, not just now, but for the next uh, five years. We've had five balanced budgets in a row. And um, this year, we've got in place the biggest uh, middle-class tax cut in the history of the state. It's uh, about $500 million. Save folks about 10 or 15% on their uh, tax bills. And uh, a lot of our neighboring states have been raising taxes uh, where we held the line. Now we're reducing them a little bit. I hope it sends a signal. It's a good place to live, a good place to grow your business. Who qualifies for these tax cuts? Come again, Jess? Who qualifies for these tax cuts? Families up to about $300,000 in annual income. 
So, Governor, I also saw for the state of Connecticut, you guys have this unique bond program. We like talking about the bond market here on Bloomberg Radio. Municipal bonds, we're big fans of that here. Talk to us about kind of these baby bonds uh, program in the state of Connecticut. Yeah, I'm working with uh, Treasurer Eric Russell. We got that passed uh, this last uh, cycle, got that funded, more importantly. So any kid born into poverty, born um, under Medicaid, will get a $3,200 set aside for that little baby. And at the age of 18 or 25, up to age 30, you get a cash in that bond, and that could be used for education or down payment on a house, help you start a business, help you with job training expenses. It's aspirational. It gives our kids a reason to stay in Connecticut. They know at the age of 18 or soon thereafter, they're going to have uh, the opportunity to use that money. It looks like President Biden is actually supposed to be headed to Connecticut on Friday to talk about the state's leadership when it comes to gun safety. What do you expect to discuss with the president? Oh, it's great. He'll be up here at the University of Hartford tomorrow afternoon, I think, uh, doing two things. One, uh, saluting the fact that Connecticut's really been a, a leader when it comes to uh, gun safety and anti-crime. We just passed one of the most significant um, gun safety um uh, laws in the country in the last uh, few weeks, um, getting those illegal ghost guns off the street and getting those uh, repeat offenders off the street. And at the same time, uh, our Senator Chris Murphy has taken a lot of the Connecticut ideas and brought them down to Washington, D.C. And about a year ago, they passed on a bipartisan basis some significant gun safety laws. So we can work by ourselves as a small state. It's a lot better if we work as a region, even better if we work as a nation. Governor, you mentioned, uh, you know, that you came from the business world. Give us a sense of kind of if I wanted to open a business or relocate a business, talk to me about the advantages and disadvantages of, of coming to Connecticut. Yeah, I like that question. Um, I'll tell you, first off, um, we like to move fast in the business world. And I find uh, too often government has a bad case of the slows. So uh, we're really trying to speed up um, that process. Uh, we're one phone call away. You always can get me or the head of, um, you know, DECD, Economic Community Development, white shoe treatment. Make sure we get you through so you can get that business started up. I think people should have some confidence with this tax cut. This is a place where um, we're getting our fiscal house in order. We're not having to raise taxes. We're not looking at deficits. And we're paying down our unfunded pension liabilities. So from a fiscal stability point of view, I think people feel pretty good. And we kept our schools open when a lot of other places had them closed. So it gives us sort of signal about um, uh, where you can be. We kept our manufacturing and construction open all during COVID. So I think people have a sense of um, it's a good place to do business. Since we are in a pre-election year, I wanted to get your thoughts on Trump's legal issues and what that means to you as far as when we're heading into the election year next year. Boy, I can't bear going through all that Trump distraction for another six years if he got elected. Um, I, I like President Biden. I like his infrastructure bill. I like the fact that um, with the money we got for infrastructure, we're going to be able to speed up your commute by uh, 10, 15, 20 minutes over the next uh, seven or eight years. You know, for a state like Connecticut, where our, our location is so strategic between New York City, the global capital, financial capital of the world, and Boston with the life sciences, access there is really important. You probably don't have to be there five days a week, but being able to get in and out is so important. That's part of what the infrastructure bill does. Governor, you're, you know, Connecticut's a unique state for many, many reasons, one of which is just the geography you mentioned. I mean, half the state's Yankee fans, the other half are Red Sox fans, so you know about managing division and diversity in the state. I'd love to get your view just from the, the macro level, kind of in this country, the level of divisiveness has just never been better. We even have names for it, red state, blue state, however you want to frame it. How do you think about that? And is there a way forward to kind of bridge that and, and kind of minimize some of the differences? We got to get to know each other better as people, not simply as uh, ideological targets. And, uh, Washington um, is broken in that sense. Um, I'm really pleased that uh, McCarthy and Biden were able to get that debt ceiling thing solved on a reasonably bipartisan basis. I thought that was important. You know, here in Connecticut, um, support for our budget was almost universal, 35 to 1 in the state Senate. Not bad. 
Um, and, you know, we're a smaller state. We know each other and we know the compromise is not a dirty word. Any sort of ambitions to run for president? Look, I was just uh, reelected here as governor. And I'll tell you, just I love the job. I mean, if you come out of the business world, being a senator or congressman is just not the same thing as being an executive where you have a chance to make a difference in your own state. And um, I love exactly what I'm doing right now. Governor, um, the Republican nomination, you know, there is a presumed leader, uh, front runner and president, uh, former President Trump. But there's a lot of other folks getting into the race. Um, How do you view kind of what's shaping up to be a pretty crowded uh, Republican primary season? I guess the more people in the race, the better it is for Donald Trump. So I'd like to think that the Republicans will sort this out pretty soon, um, you know, after Super Tuesday and um, make it a one-on-one race and give uh, the Republican primary voters a a real and clear choice. There's a guy I know. I know the governor is pretty well. His name is Doug Burgum. He's the um, governor of North Dakota. I think he's the most substantive uh, on that side of the aisle running for president. Solid guy. And Governor, what would you suggest that, you know, in terms of kind of bridging that divide, what are some of the ways that you would suggest to kind of, you know, go into a, a red state and a, or a blue state and kind of bridge, a, you know, a broader discussion with people? What, what do you find could be effective? I think uh, go to places where you don't think that people necessarily are like you, not necessarily red or blue. Uh, make sure you go where um, you can have a really frank discussion. Go to places where you can sort of break the stereotype they may have of a Republican or a Democrat. You know, people um, are willing to listen. People are willing to give you a shot, but you sometimes have to go to their place to make your case. And I know that you just recently signed a Voting Rights Act into law. Tell us more about that. That was a big deal. I mean, Connecticut is... Um, uh, a leader on so many issues, uh, not on early voting. We were one of the slow pokes there. And um, <laughs> now we passed the law um, that says you can vote up to two weeks before that general election. And uh, also advanced voting for primaries as well. Look, in this day and age, you don't have total control over your schedule. Maybe you're commuting, maybe you're out of uh, state part of the day. It just makes sense. Um, you know, during COVID, we allowed um, no excuses absentee balloting. And, uh, you know, a vast majority of our people took advantage of it. Um, I wanted to make it easier for people to vote and vote with integrity. Hey, Governor, I want to just thank you so much for giving us a few minutes of your time. Uh, Ned Lamont, Governor of the state of Connecticut, giving us the state of the state, as they say. So uh, I think what the the governor, one of the messages I think the governor has been trying to get through over the last period of time is that the, the state of Connecticut is open for business. And again, they just passed their budget with substantial tax cuts. And I know a lot of folks in the metro area here have left the metro area, whether it's Connecticut or New York or New Jersey, because of the high right. tax regime and gone to lower tax regimes. And so um, those middle income tax cuts. Yeah. So what's uh, it's uh, important here. So uh, we'll have to see how that plays out for uh, our good friends up in uh, Connecticut. I'm a big fan of Connecticut. Good stuff. Sometimes I get caught on the Connecticut <laughs> Turnpike like all the time on Route uh, 995, but uh, otherwise all good stuff there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, I'm looking at a stock on the downside here today. Kroger, the supermarket chain, off 4%. They reported some numbers. Uh, the profit topped expectations as far as I can tell, but I know the sales came up a little bit shy, so that's causing people to say, uh-oh, uh, maybe the consumer's pulling back a little bit. Uh, but let's bring on uh, someone who does this stuff for a living, knows the real expert here on the, s- the supermarket business and retail in general. Uh, that's Jen Bartashis, Senior Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Jen, people not buying as much food? What's going on? Uh, Hi, Paul. So what's really happening? Kroger, by all accounts, had a pretty decent quarter. um, And there are a lot of things to be optimistic about. um, But it's really the backdrop of a weaker consumer that's pulling down the stock and is really kind of weighing on expectations of how much growth really can uh, they can achieve over the course of the rest of the year. Were you able to extrapolate from the report what items consumers were pulling back on and which ones they were still buying? 
Well, I think one of the interesting takeaways from Kroger's conversation today is that companies that have the capability to segregate their consumer base into different segments is becoming increasingly important. We've all talked about the bifurcation of the consumer, how low-income consumer, consumers are under a lot of pressure, and those that are in higher-income households are behaving like normal. Um, and that's playing through with Kroger as well. And so the consumers that are pulling back are the ones who are suffering from you know, dwindling SNAP payments, um, increased pressure from inflation, higher cost of living. Um, and that segment is, is, is really what's um, under a lot of stress and continues to be under stress. I'll tell you what I do, Jess. I don't know if you do it, but this is the, for the first time in my life as a shopper, I, am tra- I don't even consider trading down, but I am trading down to the store brands. Oh, yes, for I do that. a lot of the stuff. And I, I can because get something exactly the same. It's but materially for a cheaper, cheaper than the brand. Yeah. So, so, Jen, am I, I mean, boy, if it's happening to me, like, I never even thought about that stuff before. And it, that is a trend. Private label so far this year has just been on fire um, across the board for, for many, many retailers. Um, and, and it's precisely because there's been a, a lot of investment in the last few years in improving the quality and the selection of those private label products. And when customers trade into them for need, they're discovering that they really are very good substitutes for national brands. Um, and so that that momentum in private label um, is really expected to continue through the end of the next year and into 2024. Um, but it's also good for retailers because those I- items have much higher margin for the retailers than the national brands do. Something I'm curious about, too, is when we've continued to see a number of these companies pass on those price uh, increases for the past few quarters and were able to successfully do that. But Campbell Soup actually signaled recently that shoppers are becoming less willing to put up with those price increases. Whereas, And then you hear from General Mills, they had an investor day last week where they started talking about how the raising the cost of its products would likely become more difficult, even as inflation is cooling. Are you getting a sense that we're going to hear more of those themes potentially coming up once we get earnings season. It's going to be a little bit of a while, as you know, because a lot of those retailers were at the tail end of that. But could there be early indications when you hear from like a Campbell's, a General Mills? Yeah, it's a great question. We've been actually warning on this coming for quite a while um, at Bloomberg Intelligence. And really what we're saying is that um, even as inflation comes down, the consumer has topped out. Um, And that means that they've adjusted their shopping patterns, um, they're spending where they're spending, um, and the volume of goods is going to become much more important again because um, all these companies have enjoyed top, you know, top line growth spurred by inflation. Um, So the kind of an artificial increase in price has driven growth. Now, as inflation comes down and prices are starting to come down, it's going to become much more important that they drive volume again and and increase the volume of goods sold. What we think is that as inflation comes down, there's going to be a lag. So we could be in for a couple of tough quarters for both the CPG companies and some of the retailers until volume starts to catch up to where inflation comes down. Jen, just give us an overview of kind of the industry structure these days. I, I know there's, I think there's some M&A. I mean, give us a sense of who the big players are. Will there be more M&A? Is everybody just trying to compete against Walmart? Where are we? Well, Walmart is by far the biggest food retailer in the United Which States. Which blows me um, away. <laughs> um, and over 50% of Walmart's revenue comes from food and grocery really? Get out of here. It is a tremendous wow. business. But also Target recently got moved to Staples because of their percentage of groceries right? as okay. well. It right. actually happened exactly. in March. Uh, Target got moved over to the Staples of the S&P 500 than Dollar Tree and Dollar General. Exactly. So all of these and all of these companies are selling more and more food to, to consumers. What that means is that it is a very consolidated industry. Um, so in terms of M&A, everyone is really waiting and watching on the fate of the Albertsons and Kroger merger um, and whether that will successfully go through. And if so, how many stores are going to be required to be divested? Um, I don't see a lot of, uh, of other M&A coming until we get a real sense for where, you know, where the acceptance level is based on that merger. Um, but it is already a fairly consolidated market. Um, what that means is that there is scale for these companies. And so, you know, the good news for consumers is that that scale will translate into prices coming down perhaps faster than they have historically, um, just by virtue of how big these companies are now. Can they get people to work in these stores? Uh, how's the labor situation for a lot of the big companies you follow? 
Uh, labor has been a, a challenge, um, but I would say that across the board, retention rates have are, are fairly stable. They haven't gotten worse. Um, these companies have invested a lot ever since um, since about 2016. They've invested a lot in in, in wages. They've invested in training, um, and on a comparative basis, um, you know. Uh, People, if they can make a, a decent wage working in a store, um, that's pulling some talent away from other big hiring sectors like restaurants, uh, as an example. Um, and so, so at, at this point, the labor situation, I would say, is fairly stable, um, but it's still expensive. Um, and they're going to have to continue to invest in wages to retain people as they go forward. Well, you are absolutely spot on this one, Jen, and I, I never doubt you. But I mean, I just pulled up the PGEO function for Walmart. Man, groceries is just the biggest business. It is amazing uh, how big, and you just don't even think about it, or I don't, but the um, largest grocer uh, in the U.S. in the in industry. Pretty cool stuff. Jen Bartashis, Senior Industry Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's based at our lovely Princeton uh, campus down there in Princeton, so we appreciate getting a few minutes of Jen's time here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.